0: Welcome to Webenaki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Webenaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webenaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Webenaki Windows is brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today marks the 100th show for Webenaki Windows. Today is the second show, in part two of our series on unpacking sovereignty. We'll be looking at the Land Claim Settlement Act from different perspectives, um, not just uh, who got what. Our guests today are Professors Harold Prince and Professor Darren Ranko. Professor Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He's a distinguished professor of anthropology and an emeritus at Kansas City University. Professor Darren Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and a professor of anthropology and chair of Native American studies at the University of Maine. The land claims uh, was a suit against the state of Maine by the Passamaquoddy Penobscot and Maliseet tribes for around two thirds of the state of Maine. Last time we discussed what was going on in the rest of Indian country, at the same time uh, of the Settlement Act, the condition. Uh, we also discussed the condition of the tribes at the time, the economic environment, civil, the civil rights uh, issues, uh, and the actual abolishment of the Department of Indian Affairs after the Settlement Act. So I've asked uh, professors Prince and Ranko to talk about what they feel was the most important aspects or results of the Settlement Act. So I'm going to ask uh, Professor Ranko to lead us off with his view of the land claims and the resulting uh, effects of it. Uh, Professor Ranko.
1: Great, uh, thanks Donna. And as always really great to be joining you here. Um, and, I, and I'm and i really excited to, to talk about this um, context of the the Settlement Act. And and I, I think I just want to add in, that there are two things I want to, probably get to, and uh, I'll start with uh, just the broader sort of federal context for settlement acts, um, um, that the uh, the Passamaquoddy v. Morton case, which we talked about last time, maybe the last couple of times, which led to the Settlement Act, um, that actually is a huge shift in Uh, tribal uh, relations with the federal government, um, obviously for our tribes specifically, but it it actually, for the first time, clarifies some things in federal Indian law. Um, Up until that case, it was not clear in federal Indian law um, whether um, tribes that did not have treaties with the United States, for example, whether they were part of this sort of federal system Um, There was contradictory evidence to that, uh, both in executive orders, court cases, that sort of thing. Um, The the idea that um, it treated, uh, uh, in in the Non-Intercourse Act from 1790, any tribe of Indians, and that any uh, language became very important to the Passamaquoddy B. Morton case that that didn't mean you had to have had a treaty with the United States or had any formal previous federal relationship. So that opened up actually land claims um, across the country, um, because it meant that tribes that um, had claims to lands that were not, you know, in in the federal system that where they had sort of, you know, the boundaries of reservations had been set in, in various treaties, that sort of thing. Um, it suddenly opened up sort of anything that happened after 1790 and, and opened up claims and it opened up claims across the country, but heavily, um, concentrated in, in the Northeast, uh, or at least in the Eastern part of the United States, where there just weren't these, uh, U S based treaties. So, you know, that actually leads to, um, um, a set, you know, some settlement acts with, uh, the, uh, the, Rhode, the Rhode Island, there's a Rhode Island Indian Claim Settlement Act. There's some settlements worked out in, in New York State as well, um, based upon the, the Non-Intercourse Act. Um, and that was very much kind of a, a new day for sort of the tribal um, federal relationship. And then one of the other things that that opens up is sort of then therefore who is an Indian tribe. So not that long after the Passamaquoddy v. Morton case, um, the federal government started to think about, you know, when uh, in the non-intercourse documents as any tribe of Indians, what are actually tribes of Indians? Um in the in the Passamaquoddy v. Morton case, it didn't really come up. It was really just the court looked at the historic record and was like, Yeah, these are Indian tribes, they've been Indian tribes forever. They didn't really kind of delved too much into it because the state of Maine itself had had its own Department of Indian Affairs and treated, which was just for these um, groups of people. Um, in other places in New England, um, this was a little bit less clear. So you have um, a couple of things happening. You have in, in 1979, this Mashpeat uh, tribe versus New Seabury court case where the reviewing court, in implementing, you know, trying to decide whether, you know, lands taken from the Mashpee after 1790, um, they would be owed those lands in some um, sort of settlement, like we had here in Maine, um, or were about to sign off on in Maine. The um, the uh, the reviewing court said. Well, in fact you know there wasn't the a department of indian affairs and this these these groups uh, this, these people sort of just existed as a town off and on and in the census sometimes they were indian sometimes they were black sometimes they were white you know so they kind of examined in that case like whether or not they're a tribe um and found that they were not in the first circuit cases um that they were not a uh, a tribe and therefore did not suit this sort of clause of any tribe of Indians uh, in, in the Non-Intercourse Act. So the Mashpee lost their case. Eventually they get they do get um, recognized and they've been able to get back some, some of their lands through federal legislation. But then the, the other situation, which is a little bit even more closely like Maine is, um, is the Rhode Island Indian Claims Settlement Act. Um, there is a very, uses, you know, they didn't even have that much in terms of uh, the lawsuits, but they had a uh, really just, they recognize, look, after 1790, the, 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 the town of Charleston seized lands against, against um, um, the Narragansetts. And um, it's pretty clearly in violation of the non-intercourse act. The, uh, the fed, the federal government, you know, negotiated, um, claims with with the narragansetts and the 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 nature of the acreage at stake was not it was just you know there was a claim for 3600 acres of land Uh, it wasn't like two-thirds of the whole state like it was in maine so um i don't think that legislation got the kind of attention um if you compare it to the it's it's very it has if you look at the federal legislation it shares some of the same elements of the, as the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act. But it's really only, all it does in that act is settle the claims. Uh, it doesn't have all the other language, um, either in terms of sustenance or internal tribal matter, municipality, future federal legislation. None of that is in this um, Rhode Island Indian Claims Settlement Act. It's only about four and a half pages long, actually. And um, you compare that to the Main Indian Claims Settlement Act. And the, on the federal side, it's over 30 pages long. So there's obviously something happens that's that signed into law in 1978 and um, by President Carter. And then President Carter signs the, the main Indian Claim Settlement Act um, in 1980. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's much uh, it's a deeper, <laughs> it's a far more uh, considered, deeper, it involves a lot more things and a lot more moving parts, which um, I, I believe kind of opens it up to the kinds of late minute changes to language, which including the municipality language, perhaps the, and Donna, I think you, you probably understand the timing on, on when these things are inserted a little bit better than I do. Um, you know, the, the, the future federal legislation, and the municipal. these are the two major ones that have really impacted us uh, in negative ways here uh, in Maine. Uh, and none of that of course is in the Rhode Island settlement act from two years before. Um, so that, that, that says something else is a foot in the, in, especially in terms of the scale of the settlement, the scale of, of the lands under question, I think, um, require that, but also, um, there are other, I think you, you could say that the feds were getting, um, more worried or, or more attuned to the fact that this, um, with these forms of, of with, settle, with the Settlement Act. Um, and this is actually where it's different in Maine. There was, there was more time between the lawsuit and the settlement uh, compared to Rhode Island. So one of the things that's happening in the interim too, between the Paso Quaddy v. Mourne case and the 1980 Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act is a, a series of court cases the most important of which are, um, and they're both in federal and state courts. Um, you have uh, the 1979. There's these two 1979 cases. One's in state court, and one's in, in in federal court. But there's State v. Dana, which hold that which held that the state state criminal laws were not applicable applicable to Indians on Indian lands in Maine. Um, and then you have the the Bottomley versus Passamaquoddy case that held that Basically, Maine tribes have the same sovereignty as other federally recognized tribes under federal Indian law, which is is these are really important cases that um, I've been shocked and sort of bewildered by the lack of um, attention uh, that the First Circuit um, has not given these cases uh, in their in their decisions to kind of support this like you know, this municipality language basically washes away all the retrained sovereignty that was being recognized just the year before this Settlement Act uh, is, is signed. And that, and I think other people made this point, I mean, pretty clearly in the federal legislation, in particular, the congressional record says, you know, everyone agrees, this is an enhancement, this doesn't take away anything from the tribes, people say that again and again. And again, the First Circuit has never been able to square for me that, you know, these recognitions of our inherent sovereignty are not being recognized in the fact that, uh, of the, the intent of the language behind the, the 1980 Settlement Act. Um, so I think this this broader sort of movement towards settlement acts um, uh, based around the 1790 Non-Intercourse Act, this is really impacting um, federal State and tribal relations. So this has a sort of watershed event for the Pasquaquasset v. Morton case, and then you see um, also this this move by the federal government to understand and control the process as to who is federally recognized. They 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 got uncomfortable, I think. Um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, in particular, and I think sometimes in some ways the other tribes got uncomfortable that courts would be deciding who's a tribe and who isn't a tribe because federal recognition itself. And um, and they start to um, you start to see in the, the legal and, and administrative law context, you start to see um, federal recognition and federal acknowledgement kind of separated out, meaning like. Um, acknowledgement of the recognition kind of brings you into the the federal system, whereas recognition itself is a kind of hazy area. Um, We often talk about federal recognition, but actually acknowledgement is the thing that actually brings tribes into the Bureau of Indian Affairs and all the kinds of, um, because of the political um, relationship between the federal government and Indian tribes, which involves a lot of things. And I'll talk about that later. that that enhancement uh, or that unique relationship, um, which includes the federal trust responsibility and, and a series of sort of federal programs um, that have had, I mean, I think undeniably a really positive impact. A really, th- those programs have had a really positive impact on, on the tribes um, in Maine um, uh, since federal recognition, which actually happened you know, a few years before uh, the, the actual settlement uh, in the main Indian Claims Settlement Act. So I think that sort of acknowledgement, recognition, that process that gets set up in the late 70s by the Bureau of Indian Affairs reflects this sort of like new day in sort of federal Indian law and federal state and tribal relations um, that the Passamaquoddy v. Martin case has a huge, huge impact on.
0: Um, okay, yep. So here, so... Uh, uh, Darren, you were uh, explaining the uh, the federal aspect of the claims and uh, the the importance of federal recognition. and uh, And Harold, I wanted to get your uh, perspective on the land claims from what you found uh, important with that case or with the yeah with the, the Settlement Act.
2: Uh, thank you, uh, Donna, for uh, having me back on the show. And uh, Darren, good to see you again. Um, I, um, yeah, my own involvement uh, with the maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act uh, occurred uh, in, um, when I joined the uh, Rustic Mi'kmaq uh, uh, tribe in northern Maine in the fall of 1981. And that was in the wake of uh, the Settlement Act that had been signed as the last act uh, signed into law by uh, President Jimmy Carter. Um, What I found uh, in Northern Maine was uh, an utter state of confusion um, among both the uh, many of the Maliseet as well as among the Mi'kmaq and a number of other uh, native people who also lived um, as off-reservation communities in Northern Maine. And it took a while for us to realize what had happened and the significance um, of that legislation um, because it drove a wedge uh, between the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy, as well as a segment of the Maliseet in northern Maine, which had been grouped as the Holton Band of Maliseet. A lot of people forget that um, the mother organization of both the Holton band of Maliseet and the Rustic band of Mi'kmaq uh, was the Association of Rustic Indians that had been founded in 1969. Uh, the founders were a Mi'kmaq, Tom Batiste uh, of Holton, who had gone on to Harvard. His sister, uh, Marie Batiste, got on to uh, Harvard and then from there on to Stanford and became a professor in Canada. And the Maliseet um, who was at the founding of the Association of Rustic Indians was Terry Polchies. And the cleavage within the Maliseet community in northern Maine that had been members of the Association of Rustic Indians was the group that concentrated in the Holton area uh, that became the Holton band of Maliseet but the Maliseet that were uh, living in Caribou and uh, Presque Isle and farther up north toward Fort Kent, they were not included. And not included either were the Mi'kmaq, and they didn't even realize what had happened. So coming back to your question uh, very briefly, um, that was the, the mainly the Atlantic Plains settlement act was an, uh, an earthquake. That um, both had uh, major positive results. That is sometimes forgotten by the people who don't know the history prior to the Settlement Act. Um, so everybody knows now that the Settlement Act was uh, incomplete and a as a settlement as far as settlements concerned settlements are concerned not satisfactory on many levels um, to the tribes that were recognized at the time. Um, the reason I call it an earthquake is that it uh, created a tie, as Darren um, most likely explained already, it created a tie, a formal tie of a trust relationship by the federal government toward the um, the recognized tribes, the federally recognized tribes, which the state recognized tribes, and there's still quite a lot of state recognized tribes uh, in the... Um, in the former uh, thirteen colonies um, here along the Atlantic seaboard, um, one well-known uh, non-recognized tribe is, of course, the um, the Lumbee, right? The Lumbee of North Carolina, who have tried to get federal recognition for a long, long time. Um, but it basically um, created a kind of a um, a, a an, an end to state-tribal relations in 1980. But it didn't, and that is where we are today struggling with what are these residual ties between the state bureaucracy and the tribes in their quest for sovereignty. Uh, now that the federal government has uh, taken over the trust relationship uh, with respect to, um, to the tribes. and you see that in these um, very difficult negotiations and standoffs and misunderstandings and uh, grievances. Because it's just a mess that uh, I don't think many people fully anticipated uh, in 1980, but it has become clear for us uh, in meaning at that time uh, with the Mi'kmaq in northern Maine, it it was all kind of unintended consequences uh, happened and came to light as a result of that uh, law. So um, it's it's just extremely complicated to give you just a quick uh, idea of what happened to the MIG and what. Uh, the Maliseet who were not recognized also experienced but also other small remnant groups that were not uh, formally recognized as penobscots there were a number of uh, families in North maine who saw themselves at, as penobscot i'm thinking here of the Goslin families for for example they they always came to our meetings in uh, in holton and later Presque isle but they thought of themselves as penobscot and most likely um, would have been entitled to, but somehow uh, were left out of the uh, tribal um, census rolls. Um, so it's it's just a, a very confusing situation that I don't think has yet been fully clarified. I have a huge database in my archives here downstairs, um, and maybe one day I'll, I'll come to sorting it out, but... Um, some people also still need to be interviewed, I think. Uh, John Stevens, who is probably one of them, and I think Terry Poultsy is still alive, but among the Mi'kmaq, only Richard Siliboy of the old uh, guard is still alive.
0: Yeah, so that, that land claims perspective is, I, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, if anybody knows this, but I think it was in the 40s that there was a federal law passed about settling uh, land claims, And the purpose of that, of that original act, and they, they, I guess they created a commission to study this. And I think it had a deadline of, uh, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, something like that. But uh, it reached a deadline and then they extended the deadline. But the the real underlying purpose for this act was to basically eliminate uh, the tribes, to eliminate their uh, trust responsibility to the federal government. So once they and, and they they actually used it to uh, uh, dissolve a number of tribes. because once they settled it, that was that was the end of it. We you know, the federal government says, we have uh, no more obligations to you. This is it. And that was the purpose of of that those uh, land claims. So and I see when it got to Maine, uh, I think that that purpose was still there.
1: Yes, no, that, that's, that's true. It, it, part of the work, um, Donna, that they were doing, it does get shifted. And, and some of this is anthropological and historical research that Harold knows all too well that um, gets shifted into the Bureau of Indian Affairs through the Bureau of, um, through a, a committee within or a subset of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Bureau um, uh, of, of Acknowledgement and Recognition. I, it changes its name a couple of times. But I think that time period, it, it, the, the Indian Claims Commission adjourned in 1978, and then um, the outstanding cases get transferred into. Uh, the U.S. Court of Claims. So that 1978 is the end date of that. Uh, But then they reorient the sort of issues around recognition. And this is very much because of the Passamaquoddy v. Morton case, right? They're like, oh, now courts, you know, as opposed to um, them being handled only in this sort of Indian Claims Commission and and, and, and Indian Claims Court, that they see this being, going through federal, federal, law and federal courts. Uh, So there is this recognition that, um, you know, they adjudicated, I don't know, well over 500 of these claims um, over, you know, from 46 to 78, so whatever that is over 30 years. Um, And then this shift, you know, with some of these um, claims by uh, especially, you know, the more Eastern tribes kind of being um shifted into uh uh, other courts and then with federal legislation kind of picking up some of the other ones but i think it is you know i think this so much of this is a control over the discourse right i mean they didn't you know i don't i think the ending you know a lot of people who who taught who write about the indian claims commission see it as a you know, as a way to pr- prevent sort of the, a proliferation of c- cases against the federal government, especially um, that tribes would have. And I think um, it sort of, you know, shuts it into a, a really specific kind of process with a pr- particular notion of, of proof and expertise. Um, and then by the time they're kind of, wrapping up their work, this becomes sort of part of the uh, Bureau of, of Acknowledgement and Recognition within the BIA, um, and then with these other kinds of court cases. But I, you know, I mean, t- to your point, Donna, that th- this notion of trying to settle for once, once and for all, you can see that, that that's, you know, that starts in the mid-40s, right? That That, right. that, is, the, that is the purpose there, and I think it's the purpose of why have all these settlement acts? It is to kind of secure and settle once and for all these kinds of outstanding claims.
2: Yeah. If I may quickly comment on what Darren was saying, Um, you're right. Indeed. that The Indian claims uh, commission, uh, uh, right after world war two was indeed geared toward cleaning up a lot of unfinished business, a lot of um, unhappiness, also pressure. Of course, we've talked about many times before by American Indians who had come back from uh, the Pacific and from the European theater, who had tremendous clout at the time. People forget the significance of um, the military um, and the self-confidence that many young tribal leaders had, who had been decorated in combat, had quite a large number had been officers um, in combat, and to take this subaltern subordinate position back in their uh, when they came home that was totally unacceptable to them and they had a, a pride not just in ancestors but in their own achievements and they were not afraid of anyone um, which is really important that self-recognition right we have always talked about the internalization of colonization that weakens people more than anything else because the surveillance of the state has become internalized. You don't do certain things because you've been indoctrinated into thinking that you don't deserve. So those uh, veterans, in particular, uh, were uh, had this kind of Indian pride back in because, in part, because the war effort so extraordinarily exploited the Indian imagery of Indian Braves, Indian freedom. If you look at all the mascots uh, that we now find problematical, but in uh, the war. We still see it in today's uh, Apache helicopters for example the Apache tribe that who I know were asked permission with the um, with the baptizing of the Apache helicopters they were extremely proud as a warrior tribe that the helicopter had been named same thing with these uh, kiowa so um, the the history of mascotism uh, worked ironically paradoxically in favor of uh, the tribes in the post-World War II era because the denigration of native people prior to the war that first happened in World War I. And again, we saw the the, the the romanticization of the warrior fighting for freedom against the invader that was all heavily exploited by the military and by the American propaganda machinery in Washington. So that same impetus, if you will, from the propaganda side for warfare uh, was, somehow creating a momentum for uh, indigenous leaders to capitalize on uh, in the immediate post-war period. That in turn, of course, had its own contradictions in the sense that the, the decision to finally deal once and for all with all these outstanding claims, as Darren was just referring to, led, of course, to a huge amount of uh, ethno-historical research. You could really say that the birth of history as a cross-disciplinary discipline between anthropology and, his, and history was the outcome of those uh, political political questions, who is and who is not a tribe, who has and who doesn't have a legitimate claim to land. So let's go back to the resources. Let's go back to the elders, interview them. So ethno-history, a lot of people today are practitioners of ethno-history, but they don't realize the, uh, the practical side of that whereby um, uh, scholars were asked as expert witnesses in these court cases. A good example is Alfred Prober, which, of course, uh, Darren knows well as a name, and who was heavily involved with the California Indians. It was a huge number of these rancherias, these small little tribes often, very small tracts of land, who had fallen outside of the, um, the, 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 the process. Very complicated case. Very interesting also from a scholarly point of view. Uh, so to just to wrap this up, the... Um, Uh, this whole process about indigenous peoples and the dominant state, I always come back to the key concept of internal contradictions. Everything that is happening already has the seeds of its own opposition built into it. That sounds very, to use the philosophical term, Hegelian, right? The dialectics of of, uh, Hegel and later Marx. Uh, but it's so true. You just see these momentums of these inter- internal contradictions building up and, and giving that drive, if you will, to that ongoing historical engagement with treaties, for example. Question is another page, another question, another search for an answer, another page, another question, another search of an answer. So it will be, in my view, never solved. Uh, that's my prediction. In other words, the so-called Indian question, there is no final solution other than what was anticipated in the early 1800s, which was the extinction of American Indians. That would have been the final solution. I use that term, final solution, um, aware, of course, that that term has been used with respect to the Jewish problem in Europe and the Nazi uh, policy of solving the Jewish question by mass genocide Uh, through the concentration camps and other mass murder uh, perpetrated between 1940 and 1945. Um, But the same thing like the term Holocaust that has been used uh, sometimes exclusively for uh, Jewish people in the European extermination campaign by the Nazis. But there's a good reason to use that term also with respect and has been used uh, by Thornton, for example, um, with respect to the near annihilation um, of indigenous peoples, um, first and foremost in terms of numbers by epidemics, but also by genocidal military campaigns, such as against the Pequot in already in 1637. So um, to come back to the question about the Indian claims, um, that was a search for an answer. Uh, the answer was elusive. Then they have the main Indian Land Claims Settlement Act, and realizing this perpetual journey to the courts, has to end, it becomes an incredible complicated mess when you have to wait for all these judges coming up with rulings. that are all part of becoming of the jurisprudence. Um, so the federal government decided to institute the Federal Acknowledgement Petition Process, the, what we call the FAP, and had this nice set of criteria. So the Aroostook Band of Mi'kmaq in 1981, one of the first things that we were faced with whether we would have to go as the Aroostook Ban of Mi'kmaq to the FAP, the Federal Acknowledgement Process. Uh, in reality, um, the ongoing, outside of that, um, that bureaucratic institution managed by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, continue to be, a number of tribes continue to be recognized outside of that. Uh, one of them who was outside that some of you may know is, uh, of course, the Pequot, Pequot uh, tribe in, in Connecticut um, was recognized in 1983 outside of FAP. And the Rooster Band of Micmacs was also recognized outside of FAP in 1991. But the Gay Head Wampanoag went through FAP. They were recognized in 1987, as were the Narragansett of Rhode Island. They were recognized in 1983 outside of FAP. So it's a very interesting um, complication. Anyway, Darren probably has something to say on this.
1: <laughs> no, I, I I, just, what I, I do want to say, Harold, and, and I think, because I'm going to, I want to shift it a little bit, because I think the, there's another major thing that's happening in the 70s, and that include what what, what I'll share with is the, those inherent contradictions, right? So, as you mentioned, you know, the reading, understanding the Claims Commission, and then the, the Bureau of Acknowledgement and Recognition, whatever, you know, the FAP process and the BAR, you know, all that. Um, The other thing that's getting firmed up in in the context of these contradictions is um, the Self-Determination Act from 1975. So what that does is basically kind of really defines sort of the federal government sort of role in tribal life and how much control the government federal government will have and how much control tribes will have in sort of the administration of a whole host of governmental and other kinds of services and often this is you know i think really important for folks it before 1975 in and really since it's gotten firmed up even more since and and in some ways you know the the the, the the language in the settlement act, the main settlement act um, that has you know that bars us from participation in future um, federal legislation kind of has also disrupted our development um, in terms of the tribes here uh, in these programs is that you know it's it's a basic I, th- I think the the kind of, you know, it gives up on the exterminate them, but it, it it definitely maintains that inherent contradiction of pulling them into a bureaucratic and sort of system of government that is not really you know that has sort of all these kind of um, contradictions or, or or compromises from sort of an indigenous governance point of view, right? But that because it's funded and there's you know the the biggest thing about these you know the Public law, so self-determination act, also known as public law 93, 638, and that these that that the 638 contract is basically this huge set of you know resources, dollars uh, that the tribes have a fair amount of control over sort of how they spend and construct their own governments and, and systems to an extent. Um, but that is like why why do tribes want to become federally recognized? Um, those services are one part of that. Uh, recognition as a nation um, in, this, in this government, the government-nation-to-nation relationship is another, which is very important. I don't want to let go of that. And then also this idea of the trust responsibility, right? That there is a unique re- responsibility that the federal government has only to these tribes that are, quote-unquote, federally recognized. Um, so I think you know, that's, that's another inherent contradiction. And it's so I think it's so interesting that the Settlement Act, the Pasquale v. Morton case, you know, is happening all at the same time of this. And I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence, per se, I think these are, you know, there is a, <laughs> a an, an urge to settle these things, right, and, and starting in the late 60s, into the 70s, and then firm up, you know, kind of, you um, firm up what that relationship moving forward will look like and so you have, you know, relatively, and then you have some major Supreme Court cases that are trying to sort out the night from 1978 that trying to sort out the, the role of civil jurisdiction by tribes over non tribal people and entities within the reservation. the, the, the you know, how much do federal, uh, how much do tribal criminal jurisdiction have over non, unna- non-natives non as well? Like, these are all, if you think about it, the time between 75 and, and you know, and, or 74 and 80, like all these things that were very vague and un-sort of decided upon get very much decided and kind of organized in really specific ways. Um, and I think that that our Settlement Act kind of, is in that period. Um, and that there's some very unique and really things that don't exist in anything else, including the municipality language, including this sort of barring us from future. These are just so because everything is on the table and people know like where they're they're, they're r- moving towards resolution around these things and how explicitly we get kind of um, in this language and how explicitly we get sort of left out of that overall firming up in terms of the main uh, tribes is, and, and you know, uh, I'll, I'll uh, it, it has a slightly different wrinkle with Micmac um, Nation, Harold, and I'll, I'll let you speak to that because like that, you know, that legislation that recognizes uh, uh, then the Arucik Band and now Micmac Nation, um, you know, it has, it has its own particular wrinkle. But I do want to, I just wanna say, I just wanna read from the Bureau of Indian Affairs website, just so people can understand what these programs are. And um, uh, just so, and I'll just read part of it, because uh, there's a lot of things. Um, being fairly recognized uh, um, places, tribes, um, into programs administered either by the tribes themselves or Indian Affairs or the Bureau of Indian Education, including the education system, Uh, consisting of 183 schools, um, uh, of which three of these schools are on the reservations here in Maine. Programs administered through the Bureau of Indian Affairs include social services, natural resource management on trust lands, um, um, subsurface, mineral mineral estates, economic development programs um, in some of the most isolated and economically depressed areas of the United States, law enforcement and detention services, administration of tribal courts, implementation of land and water claim settlements, housing development, disaster relief, um, et cetera, et cetera. I'll, I'll stop reading there. But there's a whole host of programs that can go into these um, 638 contracts and, and be supported. And that has had a real, I mean, I think a really amazing and, and mostly positive influence on our tribes and our ability to kind of function as 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 nations in those ways. But you know, in terms of uh, here in the state of Maine, we keep, because a lot of these programs presume um, that we aren't municipalities, right? So there's this tension that federal recognition and the administration of many some of these programs and how much of these programs you can administer, it's really tied to, and this is the real sort of tragedy that, you know, and I don't, and again, I don't understand, but like, you know, um, because our, if we understand people who are trying to keep us from this, um, really, um, so many of these services that we could benefit from and that, um, the rest of rural Maine could benefit from, you know, this, in this, this kind of infrastructure development, um, that is supported by the federal government through these programs that, um, are continually barred by, you know, language of the municipality, and and our and the fact that we can't participate in many of the programs um, while they even started before 1980. Some of them have gotten funded and 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 organized in certain ways post 1980 through federal legislation that we are now barred from. So I think there's a whole host of problems that um, are created, you know, by the 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 Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act of 1980. But those programs have been, even the ones that we've been able to take on and administer for ourselves as tribal governments have been real. I mean, it's been a real game changer. I mean, you know, I just think of like, you know, the, the standards of, I mean, it's still not great. I'm not saying like, Oh, all the problems, you know, since recognition have been solved, but you know, lots of standards of, of, of livelihood have gone, have gone uh, quite a bit up on the reservations. It's still not at a level I would want to see it, but you know, though that these resources and programs that have been allowed to come in um, have been a huge benefit. And it's just, you know, again, tragic that we're barred from some of them because of these, this language and the, the, the determination of, of a few people to keep us from, from our full kind of federal uh, engagement.
2: Carol. Yeah, I fully agree uh, with Darren. Uh, and I just look at uh, the situation among the Mi'kmaq uh, as I saw it in 1981. And as I saw it uh, 10 years later, um, and then again, 10 years later, and no one can dispute uh, the astounding changes. And to tell you the truth, one of the um, uh, when uh, we talked, uh, we, uh, we used the uh, film the Our Lives in Our Hands, the documentary film that some of you may have seen uh, on the Mi'kmaq basket makers, but we used that film uh, as an introduction of the community on film to uh, the audiences. Uh, so we traveled uh, all over the state of Maine and then also beyond with that film with uh, uh, people like Donald Sanepas and, and, uh, and Mary Paz and uh, Rich Silliboy and a lot of other uh, Mi'kmaq, uh, not all of them basket makers, but some were. Uh, Paul Phillips, for example, traveled with it. And that was like an introduction to the communities uh, that we uh, presented for public support uh, to get the laws uh, changed um, so that the Mi'kmaq would get federal recognition. And um, one... Um, thing that I did when I spoke uh, uh, and when I was invited to by, uh, let's say, the uh, Young Lions Club or the Rotary Club, I said, I will spare you all that kind of history about wrongs uh, done to the indigenous people. I will give you an economic uh, perspective on what happens to Aroostook County when you support federal recognition for the Mi'kmaq. What are the game changers, to to use the term that Darren just used? What are the game changers for the county, for the municipalities, towns like Presque Isle, Holton, Mars Hill, um, uh, you name it. What are the benefits of you supporting purely from a self-interested perspective? I'm not even talking remotely about altruism or historical justice or social justice, nothing about history. I'm just doing you to, for you an economic analysis of what happens when you support for federal recognition. And that was an approach that for any potato farmer in Northern Maine makes a lot of sense, rather than speaking about the injustices of the 1796 treaty. A, there was nobody living at the time other than uh, native people in Aroostook County. Aroostook County didn't exist as a county at the time. So if I begin to blabber about 1796 or 1818, it makes no sense at all. Most people have very, poor historical awareness. They don't know the dates, they don't know the significances. So that's not the approach. So coming back to Darren's point, which I think is an important one, is what does the state of Maine, or I should say the public in the state of Maine, what do they have to gain? And what do they have to lose from supporting the tribes in their quest for full recognition in accordance with other federally recognized tribes throughout the country? Because the position of the, um, the the tribes in Maine, in particular, the Penobscot body in the, the Maliseet, holding down the Maliseet, is, is in a very weird way crippled by the burden of the previous almost 200 years of craziness. That historical relationship, we have already discussed in the previous section of, of your show, Donna, but that was a, 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 a policy geared towards terminating the tribes, if not by natural attrition namely extinction through no longer being able to reproduce because the people, we didn't bring that up earlier, but Maine issued laws, which were the so-called anti-miscegenation laws that prohibited uh, Penobscot and Passamaquoddy, anyone who was deemed an Indian, from marrying a non-Indian. You could not be married. That was in the 19th century. These, If there was a marriage, it was an old, or people sometimes went to Canada uh, to get these marriages, and that's Perhaps I think that uh, that some of Darren's French ancestry may have come that way through through um, marriages may have been uh, confirmed in 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 Canada in Quebec. I assume, right? Is that true, Darren, or not? That is correct. Yeah. yeah. So, but that's the point, right? People forget now that by having a very small tribe where you have rules from the Roman Catholic Church that you cannot marry first cousins, well, you have a population. Do the, do the math. Anybody can calculate the math that if you have a population of 400 or 600 people on the island and you prohibit first-cousin marriages as sinful, prohibited by the church, so you have to go to second cousins, Second cousins, well, there are not that many people with a high mortality rate on the island, so you have to go to the Passamaquoddy or to Tobik, where many of the marriage partners came from, or even beyond, uh, because white marriages are not allowed by law. That was in the 19th century. So you have almost a recipe for extinction right because at one point if you are diluted of quarter indian blood within two three generations you have less than quarter indian blood unless you manipulate the data uh, for that Uh, so you basically have them drop out from the census rolls uh, as managed by the indian agent so i'm not saying this is all set up deliberately hey let's scheme out how to screw the penobscot but we come closely so if you read the texts From even William Williamson, the historian of the state of Maine, one of the founding historians of the state of Maine, and James Sullivan beforehand, that language is incredible if you read it with today. You don't need critical race theory to be alert to the fact that all of these 19th century and late 18th century so-called founding fathers, either from the Federal Republic or the state of Maine or Massachusetts, that they were all white male supremacists. uh, a large number was slaveholders. The others who weren't necessarily slaveholders were um, uh, speculating on Indian land, assuming that the Indians would be dead and were actively involved getting white immigrants from Germany to settle those lands in order to make the lands more valuable. We talked about it very, very early on, Donna, when we had Colin Calloway, you remember? We talked about uh, all this stuff. So that all of that stuff, so I, um, on that subject, if we look at the role of the paper companies in Maine as a fourth party in the di- discussion, we, we rarely hear about them, but the reason why that price ticket or the, the, the price tag of the maine Land Claims Settlement Act was suddenly jacked up was that the paper companies' owners who saw a golden opportunity for them to, since it was a buyer, it was a federal government, right, making it... So bingo! I think in, in in just a few months of negotiations, the price tag for the main Indian Land Claim Settlement Act paid by the federal government out of the federal tax dollars, uh, much of that went into the pockets of the owners of the paper companies. It's a fascinating little uh, factor, right? But that's the uh, at the negotiation table. It was not just the tribes, the federal government, and the state government. There were also behind the scenes of the state. Were the paper companies and the paper companies lumber from the very very beginning? Lumber, 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 lumber. It made Bangor the lumber capital of the world in the eighteen forties, right? So, okay, I
1: have, I have a guest. I have a guest lecturer here, um, yeah. Leo Ranko, and he is also there.'s people outside that he's concerned with, as dogs um, are about to do. Um, you know, I I think you know, I think that broad stories, uh, Harold is, is so important. And, you know, um, we've, uh, I feel like maybe not on the show, but Donna and I have reflected on, you know, some of the challenges and, you know, correcting these wrongs, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, Donna has spent a lot of time working with legislators and and a whole host of people, you know, during her career to, to kind of right the wrongs that, that, we're kind of calling out, you know, in terms of these contradictions. And, and I'm always struck that there's, you know, the, the rationales have have not changed that much, you know, like, uh, you're not really, you're not really Indians or you're our Indians, or you're not really tribes. You're not, you know, and they, it feels like they don't have to actually act on or change the, the 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 reluctance, right? I mean, like it's so good. It's uh, there's so many ways to say no, right, and not be uh, fixing something. And and sometimes it's just like, oh well, let's just study that, right? You know, let's just we'll put a committee on it and all that, and we'll study it and we'll we'll try to figure out, you know, what and and then and then you study it and there's a report and then people like, I still have questions, you know, and, uh, I've, I've heard a lot of that in the last (laughs) several months and, you know, people who are just aren't sure. And, you know, I, I think, I guess I I'm looking for, you know, in terms of that reconciliation or, um, uh, you know, some real honesty around how to think about, um, what's next, uh, uh, I'm now uh, uh, on the Maine Indian Tribal-State Commission as a Penobscot Nation representative. I think both of you know that. Um, and it, John Banks, who had been the longest-serving member on MITSIC, um, we honored him. I quote-unquote replaced him from the Penobscot Nation. Of course, you know that's a that's a that's a some big shoes, you know, in terms of failing, and and um, I, I, I'm sure I'm failing it in in so many ways, but. You know, he he asked an outgoing question of of Mitsik itself. You know, and sort of like what, you know, he basically asked what kind of relationship going forward, right? Do the do does the state and the tribes want? You know, and sort of how does that what does that look like? Is it to you know maintain a certain kind of power? obviously one one side of this equation is wins lawsuits uh, a lot more than the other side and is it just to maintain this sort of like tribes do whatever you want to the extent that it doesn't impact me or at at the state level though it doesn't feel like that that's what they say but even that I don't understand sort of the logic of but I think you know as we look at that past and, and you're so good at kind of calling that out Harold like what what is this future, you know, post-settlement act, post, um, um, you know, these kinds of uh, underlying, you know, histories that um, there is still not a kind of recognition for, or injustice, or um, really how much how much fraudulent dealings, for example, have really went into tribal-state relations, and how, you know, at the end of the day, the state of Maine you know, it wasn't the $81 million in the settlement Act. This is all federal dollars. So there's no, it, it, it never felt like, you know, the state had skin in the game, you know, in terms of solving the problem, they benefited from, you know, taking and, and, and seizing tribal lands and, and resources for, for a long, long time. And then, you know, to settle that there was no skin in the game from the state, you know, it just, and it, until someone can explain that to me and sort of say, this is how we see in recognition of that going forward, what we're going to do. Um, I, I feel like, you know, that's, that's the next conversation and, uh, you know, I got to hand it to a lot of legislators and a lot of folks like, um, um, you know, your great niece, Donna Amalian, and, and, and so many others who do so much great work and spread the word and educate. Um, so I think, you know, on the one hand, I am hopeful because of that work has furthered us down a road that we've never been before. And yet there's it feels significant still uh, the resistance to it. And uh, that'll be my last word because I know we only have a minute or two left. We are
0: coming up on that. I'm
1: going to just hand it over to, to Harold and shut down so I
2: don't get any more. Barf- okay,
0: Harold, Go right ahead.
2: Uh, yeah, just uh, very um, uh, shortly because I think we are probably approaching the end of this uh, time. I don't know when you started uh, because I came in a little bit late. Um, yeah, the uh, I was kind of thinking about uh, what Darren was just saying in terms of John Banks. And by the way, I completely agree with the fact that those are big uh, shoes uh, to fill, big boots, big, big. Uh, what kind of boots, I don't know what kind of boots he's wearing, but uh, but John Banks has been a treasure uh, for the tribe, uh, persistent, quiet, um, and I, I regret that his father is no longer living, uh, but would have uh, loved uh, seeing how uh, his son um, uh, honored the, the lineage um, uh, that, uh, and I think the example that his father set for John, because he certainly uh, filled the shoes of his father, although his father was in a very different capacity, uh, exemplary than John. So, anyway, Darren, don't despair. I think you will uh, grow into these shoes uh, uh, before you know it uh, because you have great capacity. I'm grateful you're in yeah. that committee, too. Yeah,
0: absolutely, Darren. And, you know, sometimes you just can't fill those shoes. You just have to get
2: your own shoes. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. I mean, that's that's what I face. do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, but just to um, uh, get to the point about where do you go from here as tribes, and I think it's uh, probably important uh, for because the confusion that you were talking about and the need for education and people saying, I have so many questions, uh, sometimes a declaration of what sovereignty exactly uh, means uh, in terms of a, uh, a goal to, towards which you want to work and not necessarily always look at uh, precedents in, uh, let's say, what the Oklahoma Nation, Oklahoma, has or doesn't have.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe that's something we can discuss in further detail on our next show. Think about that, Harold. That's a good. Yeah. It's a good uh, segue into our 101st show.
2: This oh, is our, wow. This
0: is our 100th show today.
2: Wow, Donna! Congratulations! Yeah, that's well, amazing.
0: Well, thank you. So. I want to thank Professor Cheryl Prince and Dan Ranko for being on the show today. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD Dreamwalk. <clears throat> the engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinacci Windows.